This is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. I'm Biddy Martin, president of Amherst College. And in this episode, Kirk Johnson, class of 1982, urges Amherst to continue preparing global leaders to tackle the world's urgent problems and to change in order to ensure that preparation. A liberal arts education, he says, is essential to securing our future. Here's Kirk. I remember when I was about five years old, and my dad was a sailor and a mountain climber and a hiker. And he started taking me on hiking trips up into the mountains of Washington State. And we were up on a ridge in the Olympic Mountains in Washington. And we'd spent the night in a tent. And he zipped open the tent in the morning. I crawled out of the tent and I looked out across the horizon. We were up on an alpine meadow. There were these little huckleberries everywhere. Sort of beautiful alpine meadow. And it was, a, it was a sunny day, but there was a lot of fog in the landscape. And I could look off into the distance and see just an endless, endless series of mountain ranges, one after the other, just going as far as the eye could see. It's like the first memory I have of looking at the natural world in awe, because I was like, oh my God, that, it is infinite. You could go forever in this place. So to me, it was just that incredible, the incredible morning looking out and seeing the world for the first time. I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. My name's Kirk Johnson. I'm Amherst class of 1982, and I'm presently the SANT director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. And my career is one of um, really science and science communication. And in many ways, my career today, I feel like I'm just living out my childhood. After graduating from Amherst with a double major in geology and fine arts, Kirk went on to receive his master's from the University of Pennsylvania and later his doctorate from Yale. Since then, Kirk has gone on to uncover thousands of fossils that have expanded our understanding of the paleobiology of the American West. In 2012, he was selected for his current role as the SANT director for the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum, the most visited natural history museum in the world. In 2015, Kirk also hosted PBS's three-part Nova series entitled Making North America. The amazing thing about geology or paleontology or almost any field science is that you go out looking because you know that you're going to find something. You don't necessarily know what you're going to find. And in so many times, I've been stunned and surprised by little moments of beauty or, or just exquisite places or plants or seeing animals at a distance or up close uh, or finding things I really didn't expect to find at all. Kirk describes one such discovery on an uninhabited island in the Arctic Ocean. In 1985, I was on Axel Heiberg in the Canadian Arctic, and we came across a fossil narwhal skull with its nine-foot-long ivory tusk preserved. And, and I, it didn't even occur to me ever that you could even find something like that, much less actually find it. And after really 40 years of a life of 
walking across landscapes on all continents, walking through forests or deserts or mountains or coastlines, I know that if you're out there looking, you will find things you never expected. And hopefully you'll find a few of the things you were looking for as well, because you have to get your job done. Perhaps the best excavation was the snowmass dig, which happened in the 70-day period in the end of 2010 and 2000, in the beginning of 2011. My name's Kirk Johnson. I'm the Chief Curator and Vice President for Research and Collections at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And I'm standing in the Conservation Lab, which right now is full of bones. We've just finished our excavation up at Snowmass Village for the winter. There was a discovery on October 14th of a young mammoth. We got up there on October 27th, and by November 2nd, we were digging in full force until we were finally kicked off the mountain by snow and frozen ground. A construction worker found a mammoth skeleton, and then we went in with a team of over 300 people and excavated for 70 days and collected um, almost 7,000 bones from mammoths, mastodons, giant ground sloths, giant bison, camels, horses, and, and a myriad of smaller animals. And I, I ran that dig, and, and it was 70 days of unbridled, amazing, pure joy. Everybody who was working on the project was, was so happy because many of them dreamt their entire life about finding some amazing fossil. And we were finding hundreds a day and everybody was finding their own fossil. And I can remember digging myself one day and hit this small tip of something. And it was just the tip of a nine foot long ivory mastodon tusk. And I just uncovered it with a little brush. And it was just such a, a fine moment to hit the tip of something and know what it was and then slowly expose it first to myself and then to the rest of the world. Being the head of the National Museum means I'm the curator of the National Collection. We have 146 million objects. I can go look at any of them at any point in time. And I kind of feel like the museum is a portal to infinity about it sort of contains much of what the uh, humans know about the natural world. Because that's what museums are, is the repositories of what humanity has collected over the last couple hundred years to understand the natural world and our role in it. Kirk was perhaps better prepared for the COVID-19 pandemic than most. Having debuted an exhibit on epidemics designed to coincide with the 100th anniversary of the 1918 influenza pandemic. So we're now in this, um, what we call the Anthropocene, the age of the humans, where uh, events are now really global things. You can't just think of things as regional or national, but they're global. And uh, it's likely we'll see more pandemics. 18 months before the pandemic started, we opened an exhibit called Outbreak epidemics in a connected world. It was a really cool exhibit about an emerging threat of pandemics. And uh, we worked with a number of expert scientists, including Tony Fauci, to build the exhibit. And Tony Fauci said to me, um, you know, probably pretty good chance that there will be a global pandemic during the run of this exhibit. And sure enough, at month 18 of the run of the exhibit, here came the COVID pandemic. We did make the exhibit so we could share it with other places around the world. And um, when the pandemic struck, our exhibit was in 140 venues in 40 countries and eight languages. So you can see one of the real important things about natural history museums is that they interpret complicated scientific things in a compelling way for people of all ages and all educational levels. And I wouldn't change it much now, even though we have a real life example in front of us, the things we said in the exhibit were pretty much true and pretty much spot on. Kirk's career started with his passion for the natural world. At Amherst, he began to place his knowledge of fossils into a broader context and to integrate that with his interest in art. 
When I was uh, in high school, I had a mentor at a local museum who was an artist masquerading as a paleontologist working in the Burke Museum at the University of Washington. And he, his name was Wes Weir, and he was um, somebody who really just loved fossils because they were exquisite, beautiful things. But he also realized that they were things that were um, important and relevant to the history of the planet. I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and went to a place called Lakeside High School. And one of my teachers, this amazing teacher, was a woman named Ann Stevens. Ann had gone to Mount Holyoke College, and she married a guy named David Stevens, who had gone to Amherst College. So that's where I heard of Amherst College, but I didn't actually apply to Amherst College initially. I, I, we had recruiters coming through for various schools, and the guy from Brown University was really hysterical and based entirely on how funny the recruiter was. I applied early action to Brown and got in. In the spring of 1978, when it was getting close for me to choose, I thought, boy, I really ought to go have a look at Brown and see if I like it. And while I'm at it, I probably ought to pick another school that at least so I have an option. And so I opened the college book to the A's and there was Amherst College. I was like, oh yeah, Amherst College is that place that Dave went to school in. And so I applied to Amherst just based on it being the first in the book and kind of a vague indirect memory of my high school English teacher. I went over and looked at Brown and I realized it was spring break and nobody was around. So I really didn't get to see much of Brown at all. I found some guys who bought me some hot dogs and that was great. And then I took the bus up to Amherst. And Amherst was also on spring break. There was nobody around there either. And I was thinking, boy, I didn't really plan this trip very well. But uh, I walked around and uh, I met a couple of guys who were on the rugby team. And they were, they were actually practicing. They said, hey, you know, if you want, you can actually play with this. Um, tomorrow. You can actually play on the team. I'm like, really? I'm like a high school student. They said, yeah, no, you're a big guy. You could join the team. No one would know. That'd be good. So I thought, wow, this is a pretty cool school. I like this a lot. And then I found the Pratt Museum, which was open. You know, the students were there, but I um, knocked around and found an office door. And in that office was a professor named Jerry Brophy. Jerry was the faculty member who had the title of museum director that year. And Jerry Brewer said, hey, look, if you come to Amherst, I will give you a job for the entire time that you're at Amherst cataloging fossils in this collection, in this museum. I'm like, now that is a good deal. And the idea that I would have a job when I got to Amherst pretty much sealed the deal. And that's how I decided to go to Amherst. My first day at Amherst came after a pretty long, brutal drive. Three friends and I drove from Seattle to Philadelphia. We were all going to college. We had a Volkswagen bus, and the four of us drove nonstop from Seattle to Philadelphia, stopping just to change drivers and get gas. And we made it in 60 hours, um, coast to coast. And then uh, I said goodbye to my friends and hopped on a Trailways bus from Philadelphia to Amherst. And I arrived on a warm September, early September afternoon. Don't ask me why I did this, but I brought a metal tool chest full of all my tools to college in Amherst. So I'm carrying a metal tool chest that must have weighed about 40 pounds and two great big duffel bags of all of my stuff. And uh, got off the bus. The thing that struck me immediately about Amherst was I'd never experienced humidity. 
I grew up in Seattle where it's misty and rains all the time, but when it gets warm, it's dry. And here it was a sunny afternoon and I was just sweating like mad. I'm like, wow, this place is awful. It's beautiful, but it's awful. I mean, I just the, the first couple of days of being there, I'd never been in a place like that before. The New England was just a concept to me. So when I arrived in New England in a, in a gorgeous fall of 1978, uh, it was just a beautiful place. And the campus is gorgeous and that great grassy hill down to the fields um, and the Holyoke Range off in the distance. Just just being there and seeing, I was like, wow, what a, what an amazing place. And uh, you know, I had a lot of very early fun memories in that first year as I was just sort of getting to know the place and, and find my way around. Kirk immersed himself in cataloging Amherst's fossil collection and took a course that he credits with setting him on the path to his future career. I was, I think, assiduously a B student. I got an A every once in a while, but I, I equally as frequently I got a C or even a D. And I think that it was because I was so in, engaged in what else was going on at college. I asked which my favorite teacher would be. I'd have to say Richard M. Foose, known to his friends as Pete Foose. But he was the uh, chairman of the geology department when I arrived. Pete Foose was a tough old bat. He was a post-polio survivor. He was uh, a small, wiry guy that always traveled with a, um, a crutch or a cane. He was impeccably dressed. Um, although his clothes were somewhat dated, he was always um, someone who really was tremendously prideful and very uh, formal and kind of terrifying. He taught a course called Geology 11, I think, that completely blew my mind. It took all the stuff that I knew about geology and fossils as a teenager, as a high school student, which was quite a bit, and put it into a context. And the context utterly surprised me. And that, that single course very clearly set the course for the rest of my life. Fortunately, I took that course the fall of my freshman year. That plus working in the Pratt Museum gave me uh, a really good home. I worked in the basement of the Pratt Museum cataloging the fossil collection. And it was an amazing fossil collection. It dated back to the foundation of the college. And it included the incredible footprints of um, Reverend Hitchcock, who found these dinosaur footprints in the Connecticut River Valley, and an incredible array of other fossils. I mean, Amherst was early in the game of American paleontology. And Amherst, over its history, has generated a number of well-known paleontologists. So this collection was one of the better small collections of paleontology in the country. So by the time I left Amherst, I had a pretty broad knowledge of what fossils were, because I'd spent in my spare time, we're getting paid by Amherst to catalog its entire fossil collection. And that was a really great experience. Kirk graduated with a dual major in geology and fine arts, a combination that has helped him to visualize his discoveries in their original ancient settings. Geology is so many concepts, you can see them in the rocks, and if you can read the rocks, you're a geologist. But it really helps to have an artistic viewpoint because you can actually render what you're seeing for people. And not only that, you can use art to reconstruct ancient landscapes that used to be ancient worlds on planet Earth and bring them back to life. And not only that, it's just beautiful. Beautiful. 
I always say that, that science and art are very similar. You know, it's curiosity, creativity, and execution. You, you, you are always curious. You think about how you can make something of that curiosity, and you deliver on that. That was very closely woven into my senior year at, at Amherst College, where um, I was really successful in my geology, really successful in my art, and um, it was just a, it was a fabulous year to finish up at Amherst College. I guess the other thing I would say is that Amherst really helped me in the realm of leadership. And that came mainly in the form of team sports and fraternity activities and dorm activities and just interacting with the diverse set of kids that came from all around the country to Amherst. And uh, I was the president of the rugby club and, and coached the Mount Holyoke Women's Rugby Club. And it was that realization that I could add something to a group of people that could make them perform better than they performed without me. This whole sense that, that everybody's in this for their own reasons, and if you can convince them that the sum of their efforts greatly exceeds what they could do by themselves or in, in groups without coordination, you can really do quite remarkable things. And, and that, you know, ironically, so much of what I learned at Amherst was really about the social aspect of being with smart people. Yes, I have so many great memories of friendships. And uh, I have so many people, even now, 40 years later, who are really good friends. I also am amazed because whenever I find new people from Amherst, they're always doing really interesting things in, in all sorts of disciplines. Whatever that place was doing, it was doing something quite well because people were successful in so many different kinds of endeavors. Kirk's recollections of his college years include an unusual and memorable memorial service. For some reason, I had a pet tarantula. I can't really say why I had a pet tarantula, or in fact, even where I got my pet tarantula. But um, my pet tarantula was not very good at eating, and eventually he passed away. And we got the idea of having a, a, a Greek funeral for our tarantula and I talked to the classics professor Rick Griffiths who came to our dorm in Pratt we had about 30 people there gathered and he read this classic eulogy from some point in deep Greek history before he built the funeral pyre on the deck of Pratt and um, cremated this tarantula so a totally absurd random kind of memory but that kind of stuff that happens in college I guess and just things like that that make me think of Amherst as such a quixotic and curious place. For all of Kirk's affection for the Amherst of his day, he believes that there is an imperative for change and growth, even as the benefits of a liberal arts education remain a constant. I think it's really incumbent on Amherst to realize that like the Museum I run, Amherst is a product of the 19th century and it's living in the 21st century with its eyes in the 22nd century, and you've got to change to keep up. The world is, is moving at such a remarkable pace right now. I think that liberal arts, um, along with, with many other things that we took for granted 30 or 40 years ago, really needs to be advocated for in a convincing way today, because the world is such a different and changing place. What's the value proposition of spending four years and several hundred thousand dollars being curious and 
meeting interesting people. And does it still work? It seems like it still works, but I do think that that's the challenge for Amherst moving forward is to negotiate the social justice issues of our time and to negotiate the economic issues of our time. And ultimately, you realize that we are living in an extraordinary moment in time. You know, as you grow older, you pay more attention to your own personal history. You pay more attention to history in general. Um, and as an earth scientist, I've got a lot of history to work with. I've been privileged to see a whole lot of amazing discoveries in science. And these things are just remarkable. I mean, in 1982, there were people that were writing about climate change, but the widespread concept that human activities on planet Earth are changing our climate at a time frame of decades instead of millennia or millions of years is a remarkable thing. And that's all come into view since I graduated from, from Amherst. We are genuinely at a time like no other. It's very hard to predict what's gonna happen in the next 20 or 30 years, but it's also possible to predict that if we don't actually think about it, we may not survive it. And I don't think that most of the world thinks in those terms. And in so many ways, our modern culture has made our impacts invisible to us. We live in nice sealed buildings and eat food from nice air-conditioned grocery stores. And we're just not aware of where our energy comes from, where our water comes from, where our food comes from. And we're even less aware of the fact that every year, another 80 million people are added to the population of planet Earth. All these things are so complicated that for any single person to hold them all in their brains and then propose or conceive of a rational response is incredibly challenging. I continually bump into former classmates who are doing interesting things across the full realm, whether they're, in, whether they're doing diplomacy or whether they're in economics or whether they're in, in manufacturing or whether they're teaching at universities or whether they're scientists or artists or whether they're poets, whatever they are, they're all confronting different parts of this extraordinary challenge that we find ourselves in. So I think for me, Education is a continuous thing. I think learning how to read and to read um, voraciously is one of the most valuable things you can do. There are, there are dozens of Amherst courses I wish that I had taken or I wish that I would taken with enough time to actually think about them when I was taking them because I realized that I, I threaded through Amherst on the rails of geology and science and art. And in many ways, I missed out on economics and political science and other things where I would have really liked to have known where we were then and where we are now. It's a time of great unsettledness in the world. And uh, it's really a time that you have to think, boy, what do you do in a situation like this? What do you do with the knowledge that you have? And I really think that museums are incredibly important part of the solution set to the challenges of the 21st century. Fossils are memories of our planet and they string together what happened on this planet. And understanding a place's past, whether it's a region's past or a planet's past or even a person's past, is so critical in understanding the present and the future. Museums, because they are social places, because they're places based on reality, they remain as these sort of interesting parts of our society where people can come and learn about stuff in a fun, casual way. It's social science learning, and it's science learning based on facts and objects. The so museums really show us 
what we know about planet Earth and how we get to be the way we are, all this study of human cultures, the history of human cultures, the history of human experience on planet Earth, all in museums. And as a result, museums remain valuable to society. Colleges and museums are not just the places where these things are discussed, but they're the places where the scholarship happens to understand these things better. So I think that if you think about the future, places like Amherst and other colleges, they have to see themselves as part of the solution set for the 21st century. Because it's, it's no guaranteed thing that there'll be an Amherst College in the year 2200, but it is a guaranteed thing that there are children being born today who will be alive in the year 2100 and therefore be citizens of the 22nd century. So I, I think that whatever happens at Amherst, whatever happens in the National Museum, it's utterly critical to realize that we're in a deadly serious game of the future of the planet right now. And the answer lie in more knowledge, more communication, and more collaboration. As we think about the elements that really shape American culture, I continually am drawn back to the two issues that date right back to the beginning of European settlement in North America, and that is how we've treated Native Americans and how we've treated African Americans. And those two things are so deeply embedded in how Americans see themselves and how they don't see themselves, how we treat people and what social justice is. And I think that um, we all have a tremendous amount of work to do on this topic. We have the National Museum of the American Indian and the National Museum of African American History and Culture. But the whole Smithsonian is really pivoting to this question of how do we achieve social justice and eco-justice at the same time? And I've been very uh, admiring of work in the social justice front at Amherst College. Uh, it's very much a different school than it was when I was there. And I think the changes from my point of view are all positive. I just hope that all the students have as much fun as I had at Amherst College. And I hope that they had um, have as much fulfillment in their careers as I've had, which I attribute in much part to Amherst College. So thanks a lot for what you do. Keep on doing it. Go Mammoths. Kirk Johnson signing out. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. A production of Amherst College in association with Cadence 13, narrated by me, Jeffrey Wright. Executive produced by Biddy Martin, Ian Mont, and Rebecca Kennedy. Produced by Catherine Duke, Bette Schumacher, and Sandy Danelius. Written, directed, edited, and mastered by Ian Mont. Technical and equipment support by Sean Cherry. Creative consultation by Catherine Duke, Carly Nardowitz, Connolly Stokes-Buckles, and Molly Whalen. Music from Source Audio and Extreme Music. Archival support from Michael Kelly. Thank you.